Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Amazing. Well, good morning, New Life Kulangada. How are we feeling this morning? Good. I think the AM was half the size and twice as loud, but that's okay. <laughs> Come on. Hey, I don't know if you know this this morning, but as we gather, something that has, uh, was convicting my heart before and as I wrote this message was that as we gather and as we come before God to listen to a sermon, to worship, to pray, that we come with a heart expecting our God, not, not because he owes us, not because he, he, he you know, he, whatever, but because he promises it, expecting our God to come and be present and move in our hearts and in our lives. And I wonder today, whether through the worship, whether through the prayer, you've managed to come to a place already where your soul is actually expecting God to move. But if not, fear not, it's okay, because God will move either way, because that's who he is. He cares for us. He loves us, and he is present. So I hope you're excited. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up. We're going to the book of Matthew. We're going to chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 38. And whilst you do that, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skembry. I get the absolute pleasure of being one of the pastors here at New Life Kulangada. And we are currently in a series called Paradox. And you may go, what is a paradox? Great question. Uh, the, the dictionary describes a paradox as, as a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement, which, when investigated, might prove to be true or well-founded. You may go, well, why are we talking about paradoxes? What if, aren't we meant to be talking about Jesus? <laughs> why are we talking about paradoxes? And, and the reason is this. Because when Jesus, God himself, walked upon this world, he came with this vision of a kingdom, a vision of the way things should be. And this way was so different and contrasting to what the, the way we've come to understand and know and, and, and live in today, that, that, that the statements he made about this kingdom seemed absurd, contradictory, unlikely, hard to believe, hard to imagine. They seemed like paradoxes. And so we've been exploring them. We've gone through four so far. And the first one was this, the kingdom, uh, the paradox of the kingdom. That God is a kingdom not ruled through fear, not ruled through power dynamics, but ruled through love. And then if that's the case, the second paradox was the paradox of surrender. If our God is a God of love, that it makes sense that our, call, our God calls us to surrender. Because as a loving God, we can trust him with our lives. Which moved us to the third paradox, the paradox of who is blessed, the blessed life, where God reveals that his intention for, for a blessed life isn't the same as the way the world does it. It's not based on your achievement. It's not based on your great source of pride. It's not based on how much you can build before you die. That, that for God, the blessing comes from his heart to bless. And even in moments where life just doesn't seem to line up with what we expect blessings to look like, in painful and hard moments, God is right there pouring out blessings and opening our heart to healings and to see how close he is in special and extraordinary ways. And friends, I just want to add to that. If maybe you're walking through something like that, 
and you're struggling to see the blessings of God, friends, go and talk to one of the many Christians in this room, and I mean many Christians in this room who have had an experience of the exceptional grace of God in the midst of suffering. And finally, we came to our sermon last week by Pastor Scott on the paradox of greatness, the paradox of greatness, that our God, the God of all things and the God of all power, the God who made all things that existed, right? He, he came into this earth, right? And his desire is to bless people like you and I. Now, that doesn't seem very kingly, and that's because God's view of greatness doesn't look the same way as our view of greatness. See, when we view greatness, we think, how high can I climb and how many people can I push down to stand on top of so that I can feel elevated, prosperous, and successful in this world? But God says, hey, that's not greatness. That's selfishness. You want to know what the, the true measure of a great person is? It's how much they serve. It's how much they serve. And so that's, uh, these are the paradoxes we've gone through so far. And today we're going to be exploring Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We're going to be looking through the paradox of love. Come on. I hope you guys are excited. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm just going to dive straight into it with that intro. Um, <laughs> verse, chapter 5, verse 38. I, um, it says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Got it? Nice and easy. Just be perfect. <laughs> We're in. Sweet. Hey, would you join with me in prayer? Lord God, I just thank you that you're a good God. God, as we gather this morning, we're gathering not in fear and not in uh, this sense of, I hope, God, as I come to church this morning, I would just do good enough to make you see me. But we come just in the confidence of what you've promised. We come in the confidence that you love us, that you're present in this room, that it's your scripture that you're unpacking, that you want us to know more about your kingdom and your love and character towards us, that we may live out of that with a confidence. So I just pray this, my Lord. Would you speak more? And would your words be evident? And God, may we know for sure that what you're building is more beautiful than anything we can build. And may we feel a great sense of gratitude that you invite us to build it with you. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you with the depths of our heart that you, that you love us. In your mighty and perfect name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had like a great idea, like one of those mind-blowing mind shower thoughts, you know, like those incredible ideas? Or have you ever had like this moving emotional experience where something so beautiful has happened that all you can think about is how much you want to share it with someone you care about? Anyone in the room had this? Yeah, and then you share it with them, and then they look at you blank-faced. They're like, oh, is that all? And you're like, gutted, right? You know what I'm saying. When I, when I um, first started dating Ella, um, she naturally found out what my favorite movie was. You know, those conversations do come up. And um, 
Before I tell you what my favorite music, musical, uh, my favorite movie is, I want to point something out because I've spoken about musicals a lot, and I want to really make it clear: I don't love musicals. I actually strongly dislike musicals. When I was a kid, my sisters made me watch High School Musical every day, three day, three times a week for. Um, Oh, I don't even know how long. I have three sisters. I was, over, I was outnumbered. I hate musicals. I find them cheesy. I thought The Greatest Showman was boring. Don't judge me. And I will never watch Sound of Music. I'm just putting it out there. It's dreadful. <laughs> oh, come on. But there are a couple of musicals that are so fantastic, so well-written, so brilliant, that I can't help but like them. And it just so happens that one of these musicals just so happens to also be my favorite movie of all time. Now, this is called, and I was, commit, I was um, corrected between the service, and I'm probably still going to say it wrong because it's French and I'm not, but it's Les Miserables. <laughs> Dang, I got it wrong again. <laughs> what is it? And there's no B? Well, anyway, Ella always calls it Let's Get Miserable, and I think that works pretty well too. Um, <laughs> now, here's the thing. In mine and Ella's relationship, um, I'm kind, well, Ella's kind of the stay strong and, and, you know, be a strong human kind of person. And I'm kind of like the feely, kind of like emotional kind of person. That's how we balance quite well. And, and one of her amazing qualities is even if she thinks it's going to suck, out of love, she'll still give something a go and get excited to do something because I like it. And so she comes up to me and she goes, why don't we watch that movie, whatever it's called? And, and why don't we sit down and give it a go? And in my heart, I went oh, I love this movie. I, I'm both really excited to watch it, but also terrified you're going to ruin it. And I'm like, what do I do? So I sit down with her and I go, sure, we can watch it, but let me just explain to you what the movie is. So I'm like, you know, it, it's not like a cool movie. It's not like a rom-com. It's not funny. It's not an action movie. Friend, uh, no, friend, uh, Ella, this is a, this is a, I'm preaching to you about this movie. Um, no, this is a, this is a, this is an emotional movie. You've got to get like, you've got to let it lead you. You've got to like really get into it. And otherwise you're going to be bored the whole way through. And she goes, yeah, I get it. Yep, totally. I, I can't wait. I'm so excited. And I'm like, great. So we start watching the movie. Half an hour or so in, it gets to the most emotional part of the movie. The bit that nearly makes me cry every time. There's just this awful story happening to this girl. And I'm just like, oh, it wrenches my heart. And I hear this laugh come from my left-hand side, and I look over, and Ella is just making jokes. Now, I will add, every time she made a joke, she looked at me with this, like, cheeky face, knowing she was just terrorizing me. But I think it's fair to say we just have different tastes. But there was this one scene, one scene in the movie, where Ella went silent, where she was just watching it. She was just captivated by it. And it was this story, this, this scene. If you don't know Les Mis, I'm just going to give it a background so you understand the scene. But the, the, the main character's name, his name is it's French, Jean Valjean. And he, he, he's a prisoner. He'd been in prison for, for like 30 or so years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving sister. And that time doing prison labor had hardened his heart and made him just angry at the system. And he finally gets released from prison, except for this freedom isn't the freedom he hoped. You see, he got freed, and then he entered society with these massive brands that said he was a criminal, and he was just bounced from one community to the next as people went, no, who do you think you are? You know, we don't want you. You're an enemy of order. You know, go away. And so, so this horrible experience, for months on end, he's just bounced and bounced and has nowhere to go home until finally he ends on the doorstep of a monastery, just hoping to stay warm in the kind of covered doorstep. And the aging minister opens the door and has a look at this, this homeless guy, Jean Valjean, and says, come on in. And he welcomes him in. He, he has a meal made for him. 
He, he, he has conversation and honors and gives him huma- humanity and dignity. And then he gives him a bed to sleep in and all of this stuff. And midway through the night, this ex-con, Jean Valjean, he goes, I know how I can solve the problem for the next few weeks. So he gets out of bed, he grabs a sack, and he robs the monastery. And he leaves. And before morning comes, the guards have got him, you know, one on either side. They bring him back. They throw him on the floor under his knees in front of this, this um, aging minister. And the minister is standing there. They hand him the sack of stolen goods, and they make a joke. You gave this guy so much hospitality and warmth, and he has the audacity to say that you gave these to him. He didn't steal them, and they laugh. And, and the minister stands there, and he goes, yeah, I did. I'm just confused, though. Why did you leave the best gifts I gave you behind? And he turns around and he grabs more expensive, more prized things, puts them in the sack, gives them back to him, swats the guards away and restores him to his feet. And this guy, Jean Valjean, is just torn up, like ripped to shreds. He goes, why would someone show me so much mercy and so much grace? It shatters his view of the world. And he looks in the mirror and he makes his vow before God and he says, God, because of this mercy, because of this encounter, because of this, I will be a new man. And anyone I encounter in my life, I will bring mercy and I will bring grace too. And judging by the silence, I think we can all understand why this story captivates our souls. Because it's not, this may just be fiction, but the events of this story have been lived millions of times in this age and throughout history by person after person who is going down a broken and hurting way of life. And someone intervenes with mercy and with grace that's so powerful, it knocks them from the course of life they're going on. It knocks their perspective on what the world is. It knocks their perspective of their own lack of value you out of the park and they come with this new life and this new way of seeing things, a new found commitment to reality and their life is restored. And I, I think as we read those scriptures before, it's these scenes, these scenes of real human stories played out over the tapestry of history over and over that Jesus was imagining as he said, give to all who ask. And he said, love our enemies And he said, pray for the very people who persecute us. My hope for today is is that we might wrestle with this paradox called love. That we might come to understand why it is that this is the Jesus way. And that we might move one step, one step. I'm not saying be perfect, get it now. I'm saying, would we just make that our goal? Would we just move one step today towards seriously living this paradoxical love out in our lives? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, it says this, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you. So here we have Jesus. Jesus, remember, God himself comes and walks on the earth, right? And he he comes and he's dwelling with humans and he does this remarkable sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's teaching people what this, like it's the most comprehensive guide to what the society that God is trying to build would look like. What is the kingdom of God in substance? And he's teaching it. And he has all these phrases. You have heard it said, or e.g. the common cultural expectation is this, but here's what I want to say to that. Here's how it looks different if you go my way. And in just a few verses before, he's gone through these 
statements called the Beatitudes. It's eight or nine, depending how you read it, blessing statements that describe the heart of the Father to bless his people, all his people, because it's who he is. And then getting further and getting to this point, Jesus takes logic, takes logic we would all agree with, right? Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And he makes it make no sense. He brings this paradox of love into it. Why would I love my enemy? I hate my enemy. That's why they're my enemy. It's absurd to suggest anything else. Abraham Lincoln said it pretty well. He said, do I not destroy my enemy when I make them my friend? Right? Like Jesus is saying something that just paradoxically doesn't make sense. But I wonder if actually there's a lot of logic, a lot of sense to it when we examine it just a little bit more. So what does he actually teach? He says this, people of his kingdom love are to be a people who love with more mercy and with more grace than any kingdom except for God's could muster. That we are to be a people with the kind of mercy and grace that there's nothing in this whole world that could compare. And people go, wow, wow. What I'm going to do, well, actually, first, I'm going to clarify that command. Ready? Love is costly. Love is costly. Don't get in your head. This is going to be a free and easy. I'm just going to love everyone. It so feels good. I'm just going to be emotional. No, it's not that. Love is costly. It's expensive. It's hard. And we're called to love everybody. Okay, that's, that's what we're wrestling with today. This is what we're sitting with today. And that should be a little bit difficult. It should be a nice principle, but a little bit difficult to start applying to our own lives because that, that's, that's difficult, right? But before I go further into explaining this, what I want to do is set a limitation in place in the way that Jesus says this and how he protects us, right? Because I start to ask, well, you know, to what degree do you mean I should love my enemies and all this stuff? What if I'm being robbed? What if I'm being abused? What if my family are in danger and so on and so forth? Don't resist an evil person as if. I resist them all day long. But the good news is Jesus doesn't leave this command out there without an illustration to explain and offer clarity to what he meant. So he gives three examples of the evil we don't resist. The first, a slap. You might think, that's assault, take them to prison. Sure, but in the Middle Eastern culture, historically and today, that slap is a right-handed slap, it goes to someone's face like a backhand, and it's actually not really assault. What it is, it's an insult of the highest degree that demeans and belittles a person and robs them of their pride. That's what it was. It was like an extreme insult. That, that's what the slap represented. The second one is being sued or someone wielding power that is legal to take your possessions. And the third one is using this Roman law that requires civilians, if asked, to carry military equipment so soldiers don't have to. Right? It's when someone is forced to do something they don't want to do or when someone feels taken advantage of. So what does this clarify for us? Well, the first point is this. Relist those three things. It's not about crime. Jesus isn't referencing crime. Every one of these are carefully sculpted to exist within the law, and he references the law in two-thirds of them. And he doesn't even marginally stray from what was culturally common and acceptable to the people of that day and age. Jesus isn't talking about criminal evil. He's talking about the injustices and the unfairness that come against us in everyday life. It's our spouse, our colleague, our friend publicly insulting us. How do we handle that? It's when we make a mistake and someone leverages that mistake to get an unjust level of compensation at our expense. It's when our boss asks us to do something we don't want to do, and technically it's not in our contract, but they have the right to ask for it, but we just don't want to do it. It's a bit humiliating. I don't want to have to clean the whole office. But I want to point this out, and I want to say it again. I want to make it very clear. 
What this isn't saying is submit to abuse. It's not saying allow your home to be robbed. It's not just justifying passive, passivity in the face of criminality. Friend, if you're, if friend, hear me, if you're in a situation that's dangerous, if you're in an abusive relationship, if you're facing a situation that goes beyond what this has defined as its scope, and this is the verse that you're using to justify you staying there, you've got to stop using that verse. Friend, that's not what it's saying. And my advice would be, get out of that place. Get out of the danger. Get out of that situation of hurt and abuse. Get out of there quickly. That doesn't mean you hate the person causing it. Go ahead and pray for the one who persecutes you. Go ahead and stand for them faithfully, but don't stay in the situation. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. At its core, what it's doing is he's inviting us to reflect on how we respond interpersonally in moments of ordinary, legal, and yet still awfully painful offense, injustice, and unfairness. So to what degree does Jesus invite us to love beyond reason and grievance in ordinary, everyday, day-to-day encounters, starting with this afternoon or how we do coffee after this, all the way to tomorrow when we go back to work and then Friday ends and then we're back to the weekend, everyday, ordinary, day-to-day things. And the problem is if we view this in one of two ways, we actually rob it of its application to us. We go, if this is justifying me staying in abusive situations, staying in painful situations, if I take this too far, then I'm not where God wants me to be because that's not what he's saying. And if I view it as taken too far and I'm not living in there, I say, well, this scripture just applies to those people. But when we understand this is talking about how I interact with people who I encounter every single day, multiple times a day, we suddenly have to go, oh, drats. I have to listen, don't I? This, one, this one's about me. This one's about how I live. It's a simple reality. Love is costly. And we're to love everybody. Matthew 5, 44 to 47. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Honestly, it's such a beautiful piece of scripture. It's such a beautiful principle. Uh, We're invited to live out a standard of love that had not up until that point and still outside of the scripture's influence has not existed in any political entity, in any culture, in any place in the world. Jesus goes, let me take the standard and let me raise it. It's so beautiful, in fact, that Gandhi is quoted saying it a whole bunch of times, saying this is a beautiful scripture. And that's powerful. It's a vision that has inspired thinkers and lawmakers and culture builders. It's a a teaching that has inspired individuals in their interpersonal relationships for millennia. So we go, cool, I agree, sweet, done. What do I do with it? How do I do it? How do we begin to painfully give more than is required? How do we combat the entitlement of our souls through acts of abundant love? And how do we do this for everyone, even those really difficult people? Well, my my question to you would be this. Well, what's holding you back? Seriously, think about it. Internally, process it. Friends, this teaching, preaching, this isn't about you guys spectating me talk about Scripture. This is about us gathering around Scripture and discerning what it's saying to us. So what's holding you back, right? It's so vital we know. I I know for myself, as I reflected, I had these three objections that came up. And I wonder if they might relate to you as well. 
oftentimes in the moment, I don't think that person deserves it. Oh, they don't deserve it. Other times I go, I just don't know if it's worth it. It's going to cost me quite a lot, you know. I don't know if it's worth it. And the third one I go is, I don't know if I need to do it. Like, there's so many other Christians. There's so many churches. Like, do I need to be the one doing it? Anyone else? Just me? Right? Each of these statements of fear, uh, each of these are statements of fear and doubt. And each of them are addressed in Scripture. And if we listen and we choose to trust what God tells us, we actually have the power to begin to identify not only what areas we need to bring into alignment with God's words, but also how we can experience his healing. So how does scripture respond? I'm just going to list them, and then we're going to break them down. So first, when we don't think the person deserves it, scripture responds by saying humans are more valuable than we could tend to believe. And then when we hear it say, well, we don't know if it's worth it, scripture replies with, well, well God is more present and more good than you dare to believe. And then when we go, I don't know if we're the ones who have to do it, really. Scripture replies, hey, you are more impacted and more a recipient of this than you want to believe. My invitation to all of us is this. As we walk through these ones, one by one, I want to invite you to feel free to wrestle, to struggle, to feel apathy, to disbelieve. I want to invite you to do this. Because when we read through Scripture and we engage through this, there are going to be certain moments where we realize our souls have disconnected. We're not interested anymore. Something about that was too difficult, didn't make sense. I haven't grappled. It hasn't become a reality inside of my soul. And when we experience that, what it tells us is this. That is a point, that is a thing that God wants to reveal and heal within our souls. And so as we go through these three things, take notice of your souls. If one of them you find more difficult, more um, uh, harder to comprehend, you find yourself getting apathetic, switching off. I know that when I hit a difficult, th- I know I've hit a difficult thing in scripture when about six pages later, I realized I hadn't read the last six pages, I had just been zoning out, right? And I realized I can go back all the way six pages and find that one word that threw me and go, ha, that's right, I should have just paused and reflected. So it's my invitation, don't just sit there passively, let's engage us, let's work out how do we become the kind of people with the kind of love that God calls us to have. So the first one, humans are more valuable than we tend to believe. Genesis chapter one, first chapter in the Bible, verse 27 says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he crafted them. Male and female, he created them. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So what's it saying? In short, Humans are inherently designed by God as valuable. And though every one of us are infected at the deepest level with this weird thing called sin, which is just biblical language for that brokenness inside of you that keeps breaking other things, right? That brokenness inside of you that keeps rejecting what's true. That's what it is. And even though all of us are infected with this thing called sin at our deepest level, right? Still, when we meet the people infected by it, we recognize that they're not the enemy, They're not the person we're contending with. They're not the thing we're struggling against. See, when God made us, he poured his love and design and care and image into each of us. And so because he poured himself and what's valuable to him into us, we are inherently valuable. What that means is this. Before a baby becomes an adult, before a a human being has achieved a single thing, before a person has built their empire, earned their wealth, built a lasting relationship, whatever other standards of value you have for a human being, before any of that, 
as a useless, that's probably a bit harsh, but blob of baby. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't have kids. <laughs> In that moment, God looks at that human being and says, wow, I cherish them. Wow, they're valuable to me. Wow. And that means every one of us, every one of us and everyone out there and everyone we come across has that same inherent value and worth. And we get so caught up thinking we're the main character in this video game called Planet Earth, this movie called Planet Earth. We just think we're the main character and it all surrounds, it happens around us. And so often we forget that we're just one piece at one time of a far larger mosaic of God's beloved human race. And so when we bump into anyone, whether their sin is on display or not, whether they contend with us or not, the first thing we have to see is that beneath it all, this person is so darned valuable to God, and he loves them. And if their sin is on display, what we see is, well, so often so is mine. And a lot of time, there's still enough mercy for me. Let me put it this way. Has anyone here, and I'm going to have to put my hand up here. Has anyone here ever gotten grumpy when they've, gotten, when they've been cut off by a car in traffic, right? Put your hands up. I want some boldness in the room. Let's show some honesty. Any grumpy drivers? Fantastic. Right. My question for you people who raised your hands and you who lied and didn't raise your hands, um, jokes, uh, is have you ever cut someone off? Maybe you were in a rush. Maybe, maybe you thought it was safe and you went, it's fine. Maybe you made a simple mistake. Have you ever cut someone off? It's real, real, real easy to be aggrieved before you realize that generally you're as often on the side of the problem as you are on the side of the victim. You know, we see snapshots of people's lives and we make entire judgments on their inherent worth. And you know, that person, no matter who they are, how difficult or annoying or selfish or how much history you have with them, they are not the enemy. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces and there is a nature called sin. That's what we're wrestling against the destructive forces of evil, not human beings. They're someone God loves, just like you. So when the first objection, the first doubt comes up, well, this person isn't worth the effort of love, we've got to remember that the Bible in no way agrees with that statement. It gives us no room to believe that. And if that's the one we're wrestling with, we actually have to just sit with God and go, Lord, would you just help me view people more like you do? Would you just begin a journey of teaching me just how richly valuable human beings are. Open my eyes. We cannot love in the way Jesus calls us to until we see the people he calls us to love with the same value he sees in them. Simple. Second one, God is more present and good than we dare to believe. Matthew 28, 20 says this, and I'm sure, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I don't know if you know this, um, but that was written about 2,000 years ago, uh, and the words end of the age implied the gap between Jesus' resurrection and, and Jesus' return. Now, just doing simple math right now, if Jesus, knowing all things, being God, knew that the age would be a minimum of 2,000 years, and he said, hey, surely I am with you to the end of the age, then he couldn't just have been talking to the people in that room. Right? He had to be talking to everybody in the future and all time who would merit what it means to be a part of that group of people called Christians, called his followers. Well, well, what does it mean? It means very simply this. You know that you haven't got it all together. There's a deep brokenness inside of you. You know Jesus is good and his love extends before you and you trust that he can save you, even though you can, and you bring nothing to it. That's it you can do that, then you will know for a fact that this verse applies to you. What does it say? I am with you, always, to the very end of the age. 
Ephesians 2, 47 says this, but because of his great love for us, God, so anything we're about to read, whatever we're about to read, why does he do it? Has he got an agenda? Yes, he does. What's the agenda? His great love for us. His great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order, in order, Right? You go, well, why did he do that? In order that in the coming ages, he might show, he might make known, he might reveal the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you know that our God is busting to show kindness to you? Show kindness to you. This isn't about him meeting some idea of justice. He looks at you and says, I want you to know I am kind. And that doesn't mean you get the red Ferrari, because I'm telling you this right now, you couldn't afford the insurance on it. Because at the end of the day, getting everything we think we want generally doesn't help. But what God knows is what we need, and he actually cares enough to bless us with it. It's that simple. Okay, so maybe humans are valuable enough. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just coming to this place where I'm asking, I, I get it, they're good, they're great, but I just don't know if it's worth it. It sounds expensive to me. How much good would it really do? And this is something we've got to clear up in our hearts and minds. Because before we can love in a way that imitates the mercy and grace Jesus calls us to, we have to get a clear sense of what Jesus was even doing on the mountain preaching. What was he building? And what Jesus was building was a kingdom a culture, a society, a vision of how life should be done. And what does the scripture reveal about what that kingdom is? Does it say that uh, this is a kingdom where evil people should thrive? Doesn't it say don't resist an evil person? Is it one where God's good people are oppressed and persecuted? Jesus talks a bunch about that. Are these the types of society Jesus is fighting to build? No. Because the problem is, if you just read this verse and shape your entire perspective on what God's doing on one couple of verses, friends, you're reading the Bible wrong. The Bible is a collection of books, one large narrative, pouring truth to justify and show and reveal what God, who God is and what he's doing in this world. And the larger biblical narrative, I go to, I go to the book of Eden, what do I, uh, the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, and what do I see? I see a God who made a beautiful garden, a garden where people could come and find rest and shalom, which means peace to the highest degree, right? They are well fed. They are cared for. They have intimacy and love and joy. And then I go all the way to the end of the book and I see the promise of eternity where God says to human beings that it will be just like that Garden of Eden again, but even more beautiful. And we will have peace again and every tear will be wiped away and we will be perfected and there will be healing to our broken hearts because it was never the way God intended it to be. And I read that and I go, well, how could I possibly accuse God of desiring anything less than a beautiful kingdom? A beautiful kingdom, a kingdom of peace. A kingdom where God breaks the cycle of violence. Where we value other people enough and know the taint of sin enough to show far more mercy than the people around us deserve. The kind of kingdom where someone born into brokenness, taught broken ways, wrestling with inner demons, surrounded by bad influences, doing destructive life choices, might encounter a grace giver, you or I. And they may encounter something so beautiful, a grace so majestic, so far beyond the scope of what they expected reality to look like, that they may come to a place, just like Jean Valjean at the beginning, they may come to a place where they say, uh-uh, 
I don't want to be part of that way of doing things. I am not what I've defined myself as. I am not what the world has said. There is a grace and a mercy that expands my perspective of what's true and what's real and how wonderful life can be. And I will fight and I will stand for that, that other people may know it as well. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus is building. One where God's people trust the goodness of their God and know that they are safe in his hands. No matter what we're facing, the kind of kingdom where people see in the very DNA of this kingdom how richly and how deeply God cares for his people. And so we're confident no matter what life throws into their hands. So how is it worth it? For the individual, it's worth it because God will take that act of kindness and use it to join a chorus of beautiful beautiful things, to set free, to heal, to liberate the Christian, the non-Christian, human beings in general, to bring us forward and heal our hearts. And for you and I, it might just be the cost of, of an extra mile-long stroll, or the price of a jacket, or choosing to be gentle and kind after an insult. But for the person, it could be worth everything. This is how God is. Somehow, we just over and over and over again, we pay less than what is needed. And God does far more than we could imagine. So beyond the individual, what, about the, what else does this do? Why else is it worth it? Well, we consider the culture of the kingdom. You see, Jesus is perpetuating a new way of being human. And I don't know if you know this, but what we sow, we will reap. If we build a society and a culture of Christians where we say love, and this costly kind of love to all people, even the ones who have offended me. That's what I'm going to fight for. And I'm going to fail, and I'm going to fail, but I'm going to fight, and I'm going to fight, and keep taking step after step towards it. If we fight for that, if we sow that into our society, we will reap that because there's a day coming where we will need to be the recipients of that same grace and mercy that we are fighting to show. Imagine if this was the Christian celebrated way of treating one another and the world around us, right? Imagine if the testimony that the world, imagine the testimony that would be to our world if the world was to look at the church and say, wow, they're weird. But how diggity they love well. Oh, I've asked so much from them and I've been such a pain in their butts and they just keep coming and they just keep loving and they just put... Why don't they grow weary of doing good? What's going on? And it takes far less than you think for a person to say, for a person to say, wow, just what's going, tell me more. You know, I've done Red Frogs a number of times, which is a ministry to help the schoolies who go to surfers. And, and, and it's funny the moments that people really get grateful. You know, we, we've got this you know, lad over our shoulders walking him home so he doesn't, because he's too drunk to walk. And we're walking him home and, and we're going there and he's just like, why? Are you guys doing this? Do you guys pay to do this? We sure do. Why would you pay to carry me home? Why would you do this? And you go, well, you know, actually just, I was loved by a God who cares for me and I think God loves you and I just wanted to show you that. And they go, I don't really get it, but I'd like to know more. And the number of conversations I've had at Red Frogs with people about the gospel and Jesus and I didn't bring it up, but they did because they've been so stirred by the kind of love they receive. Friends, we, it's not just a red frog thing. This is a life thing. It's a life thing. So for us, you know, there are times where it must seem expensive, but we've got to remember our God is close. He's close and he's got us. And it might feel like it's going to cost us everything. We might feel like I'm going to be so tired if I do this. We might feel like I might not have enough money if I give this. But we trust that there's no time our God is closer than when we are stepping into sacrificial love for the world he loves. And we just trust him. We go, God, I know you're good. And I'm scared because I can't see the future, but I know your character. I release this to you. So we begin to see people more like God does, and we dare to see how God's love is so worth it. 
And thirdly, we are more impacted by this than we want to believe, right? This is where we land. You know, it's easy to think, it's easy to think, well, how hard it is to love our enemies. It's easy to think how much it's going to cost. It's easy to get caught up on the cost. And it's easy to think, how could big and mighty God sitting on his throne in heaven tell us to do something so difficult? But when we realize that this isn't God telling us to do something that he himself hadn't first done, we're joining something God started before it was cool. He isn't a taskmaster in heaven, bossing us around. He's in the dirt, rescuing people through a love that we can barely conceive. Check out Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 10. It says this, Very rarely will anybody die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that, that in the midst of, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by this blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Vision is great, human value beautiful, but the only reason we would take a call like this seriously is because we've tasted it ourselves. We've seen its beauty. The only reason we would ask, do I really have to do it? Is because to us it's a totally separate thing and we can't conceive of why it relates to us. When we realize it's not, do I really have to do it? It's I'm already in the middle of it. I'm already receiving this. I have a God in, in heaven who sees and knows me and cares for me, not because I'm ticking boxes and, and checking righteous and religious ideas, but because he loves me. You know, back in 2011, I was dragged into a church begrudgingly Dragged. I mean, I didn't want to be there. My parents, family, friends were going, and, and, and my parents said, you're going. And I said, I don't think I am. And my parents did that, you know, that look they do. And, and, and parents do, not my specific ones. And they said, you're going. And I went, oh, okay, I guess I am. And so I go to church. I didn't like the idea of God. I came from a broken home. I come from uh, abuse from my, from my father. I come from a, a destructive background. I thought, if God's real, why would I want anything to do with him? Why would he let me suffer that way? I didn't go to that church service looking for God. And he didn't meet me there, soften my heart and wash over me because I was there looking for him and I had made up everything I'd ever done wrong. I entered that place very much an enemy of his from my perspective. Very much guilty of sin. Very much, very much self-absorbed and having some form of theistic entitlement. God owed me. And yet still in the midst of that, he, he did come to me. And he loved me. I remember just standing there and I was just looking. It wasn't even the message. It was just like the act of worship. And I looked around and I remember God saying, I just remember this moment where I went, God, these people look really normal and they're actually worshiping you. Are you real? Like, are you real? And I, it was an audible moment. Like it wasn't a majestic or miraculous thing from an external perspective, but he, he stepped in. He was aware of me. He washed over me with his love. I didn't have answers to all my questions, but I had peace. I, I, just, I just knew it. He was real. And he saved me, and he gave me more than I even knew to ask for, which a decade and a bit later, I'm still unraveling. He invited me into a family, called me a son, said I was welcome, undid the depths of sin and shame that I didn't even know I had but was weighing me down. 
And, he did it, and he's done it over and over again, revealing his love and his mercy and his kindness over and over again in very non-Hollywood ways for the years since. And friend, it was no different for you. Were you raised in a Christian home? You knew your Christian uh, values. You knew the, 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 the memory verse from each week at Sunday school. You, 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 know, you, you knew the laws you had to keep. But on the inside, you knew you were failing. You felt that shame that you weren't living up to what God was calling you to. Or maybe you lived out in the world and you had never even heard the law of God or the goodness of God. It seemed absurd to you. But somehow in the midst of your sin and in the midst of your brokenness, you encountered God. Not because you met a checklist, made peace, and made friends, but while you were still his enemy, while you were still sinning, every one of us, that's when he intervened. The call to love our enemies, to love in crazy and costly ways, it's personal to every single one of us because this love that seems wild, absurd, and even reckless is a love we have been given freely by God. You see, Jesus, he lived out every part of this sermon because he believed in this kingdom. His vision of a kingdom where violence and brokenness don't beget a cycle of vengeance and woundedness. A kingdom where all people, diverse, disagreeing, broken in various ways, can come together, reconcile, and find healing in him. A vision where we can give more mercy and more grace to one another than we ever thought we could afford. And we can find ourselves like his children, carrying his culture, his DNA, his image in the way we live. People will look to the way we love and say, wow, that looks a lot like God. Wow, I want to know more about that. This is the kind of kingdom Jesus is building. And you and and I, we're welcome here. Though we all fail at this standard every single day, why are we welcome then? Because Jesus doesn't fail. Because Jesus died on a cross. He laid his life down. So that even whilst we sinned against him, even while we were still opposing him, even today, Christians in the room, as we continue at times to be filled with that sense of sinfulness, that desire for things that God isn't for, because let's stop, put, let's put away the, the facade and the fake image and the masks we put on, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're all struggling. And we all feel like we're just not doing it right because we're not. But a day is coming when all will be put right. And God's intention for us and for who we are and for who we will be will be restored. And in the meantime, we just go, God, I'm in. You've loved me. You still love me. Right now, an enemy of you, I'm literally making myself as though I was an enemy of you. I'm still sinning against you. And what I see is an outstretched arm, a hand with a hole in it, a hole pierced that he may go on a cross die for my sins. That arm, it grabs me, it pulls me out of the mud. And that's true of me and that's true of you. And that is what we get to stand on today as Christian believers and say, my God is better than I deserve, better than I could conceive. And he has so much more goodness to reveal to me. Lord, thank you. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray. And I'm just going to invite God to respond and restore to us a vision of his love unlike one we've ever had before. Would you join with me? Lord God, I thank you for your kindness. Lord, I thank you that you love it. It doesn't fail. It's not, it's not a fake love. It's not a worldly love. 
It's the kind of love that beats down the barriers that societies and, and broken worldviews and broken individuals put up between each other. It's the kind of love that serves instead of is seeking. It's the kind of love that, that cares and gives dignity and value instead of being self-focused and self-promoting. And for us, God, you pour out with that love. For me, God, in the midst of my failures this week, in the midst of my sins this week, I know that even though I still sin against you, you raise me up in your love. And your love is so sufficient. It doesn't shake, it doesn't change. God, we just praise you in this room. Lord, would you come fill us with a real sense of what it is to be your beloved people? You know, maybe in this room you've, you've not heard this gospel before. Maybe in this room you, you don't know this Jesus. Maybe in this room you're hearing about the kind of love a Father in heaven could have, and you're going, wait, I don't have to achieve, I don't have to do anything. This is free. My God wants me saved. He's not tricking or testing. He just wants me. You know, all eyes are closed and all, all heads bowed. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand if today you want to make a decision to either give your life to Jesus for the first time and say, yeah, I'm in. I want that. Or maybe you've done that before. You've walked away and and you want to return. So I'm just going to give space. Just go ahead and raise your hand. All eyes will be closed. All heads will be bowed. I've just got myself and a member of the ministry team looking out. If that's you today, I want to invite you. Just raise up your hand. Make that decision. God, I thank you so much that your mercy doesn't fail, that you are stirring in our hearts right now, that you are leading us to repentance and to turn back to you. God, be glorified in our hearts. You are Lord. You are enough. You are good. I trust you with with my life, and then we do. We trust you. Lord of love, teach us to love like you do, to value every human the way you do. God, to see that the kingdom's worth fighting for. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And to see the first God, you, you loved us. First God, you stepped in and did this for us. Be praised, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.